Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, I also want to say welcome to the chapel. So glad that you guys have joined us. If we've not met, my name is Steve Elworth. I'm the site pastor here at Chapel Segan. I'd love to meet you out in the lobby after the service. I'm sporting my chapel women's t-shirt because chapel women summer starts tomorrow night. So if you're a lady in the room and haven't signed up, would love for you to come and join us. We've already got more than 200 ladies signed up and it is going to be an awesome summer. So it's not too late. Sign up. You're going to hear more about that uh, at the end of our, uh, our time together today. I want to start with a question. Do you have any traditions in your family? Maybe trips that you take each year, family reunions, or traditions around holidays. It seems like it's getting more and, or less and less common for people to have traditions that continue to carry on, but if you have any traditions like that, they all revolve around a common purpose. They're to ground you in something greater than yourself. If you have a family reunion every year, yeah, it's a great opportunity to get to know your family, maybe that you don't see a lot and have a lot of fun and introduce your kids, but really it's to ground you in the reality that you're a part of a family and all of the things that come along with that, good and bad. If you get around the table at Thanksgiving and you go around and you say what you're thankful for, it's to ground you in the reality that you may not have everything that you want, but God has given you the things that you need. If you have had a tradition around Christmas, it's probably because you are trying to help each other be grounded in the reality that Jesus, God's son, had come for our redemption. It's a way for us to celebrate the ultimate gift that God had sent his son. And all of these traditions and whatever you do is to ground you in something greater than yourself. I'll never forget one of my favorite traditions as a family growing up is during Christmas, we were usually on Christmas Eve, we would go over to my grandmother's house. It was the one time of year that we actually got to eat at the really nice table with the really nice china, and she would always pull out this candle that was kind of like this Ferris wheel that when the, can when the fire was there, it would make the thing spin. I loved that thing. And she would always print out a, a script for myself, my brother, and my three cousins to read through the Christmas story. Now, if there's anything that's common with family traditions, my guess is that it's the same for you as it was for us. The kids don't take the tradition seriously. So we always got excited when we got our script to read things because we were going to read it in our funniest voice that we could think of. And every time it got around to my oldest cousin, when he was talking about Jesus being introduced, he would introduce him as the king of the Jews. And I just have that memory in mind from this tradition that I'll never forget. And every time I see him, I start laughing. I look over at my grandmother and she's always grieved. She's always mad. And I keep, I always wonder to myself, even as a young kid, why do you think anything different is going to happen? This is just what we do. And then my parents would try to stand in solidarity with my grandmother and try to be mad at us, but they were laughing behind, uh, behind their hands. And uh, it was, it's a silly tradition, but I will never forget, and I will always be drawn back to read the Christmas story out of Luke whenever Christmas comes along. It grounds me in that reality. Well, the, 
the traditions that help us remember were really important to the people of ancient Israel as well. There were five feasts prescribed throughout the year that they were supposed to have a orderly conduct of service, the things that they ate, the things that they remembered, the scriptures that they would read, so that they could remember specific things that that feast was trying to point them towards. One was called the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks was seven weeks after the Passover. It was right in the middle of the harvest season. And it was to remind them that everything that God had provided through the harvest, all of the food that he had given, was not because of their great farming. It wasn't because of the works of their hands. It was to remind them that God is their provider. They were to give some of the first fruits of that harvest to God as a sacrifice, as worship, to remember and to praise him for the things that he had done. And during that feast, somebody would stand up to read Exodus 19 and 20 to ground them in their history of God giving the law. And then someone else would stand up and read the book of Ruth. And I always found it interesting that at this particular feast, that this particular festival, the book of Ruth would be read year in and year out because there's nothing fancy about Ruth. There's no big battle scenes. There's no big name kings or prophets. It's the story of two widows and a farmer that find themselves within God's story, even though things around them don't seem like they're going the way they would have anticipated. It's a story that reminds us that no matter what is going on in the world around us, no matter what's going on in our situations, God is always moving in the background. It happens, the story happens during the harvest, so that's an easy way to think that this should be included in this harvest, but I think it was included because God wanted his people to remember just through the lives of one story that God is always on the move, and since he is our provider, there is always hope. There is always hope. And these are the truths that we need to be reminded of as well as we follow God. We need to be reminded that we're to find ourselves in God's story. We're to be reminded that as he provides and as he blesses and as he pours out love and favor, it's not just for us, but it's something that God is doing a part of his grander story. And it's to remind us that as we follow God, no matter what is going on around us, there can always be hope. And that's what we're going to see today in our section of the story of Ruth. So pray with me as we get ready to dive in. God, we're so grateful for Jesus. Thank you that you have allowed us to hear of you, to read of you, to know how good you are. And God, I know everyone in here is bringing in something different, something they're struggling with, something they're excited about, something they're anxious over. And God, no matter where we find ourselves, would you allow us today to encounter Jesus, to hear from you? Because that's the only way we're going to leave changed. So if there's anything I've planned to say that's not of you, take it out of my mind. And if there's anything you want to say that I've not thought of, would you come and speak? Because we want to hear from you and we want to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So where we find ourselves in the story is Ruth and Naomi had left Moab. They came back to Bethlehem because they were looking for food. 
And last week we saw Ruth go out to glean, to go into someone's land to be able to work and harvest some food. And she stumbles upon the land of a guy named Boaz. We get to meet him last week for the first time. And Boaz is a a wealthy landowner that just so happens to be part of the relatives of Elimelech, who was Naomi's husband. He's part of their clan, part of their family. And the text uses this as it turns out, or it just so happens, which can better be translated as, by chance, she chanced upon. And what the author's trying to do is show us that even though things look dark and dire, everything was moving according to what God had intended it to do so. Our two ladies in the story just didn't yet get a chance to see that. And at the end of the day, after working hard in the fields, Ruth comes back to her mother-in-law, and this is what we read. Chapter 2, verse 17 says this, So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. And then she threshed the barley that she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and uh, to her mother-in-law when she saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Now, we talked about last week, we don't actually know how long Ruth was working. I think that when she got there, the overseer of the of the land actually told her, you need to wait for the master, for Boaz to come so that he can give you permission to glean here. And Boaz comes and and gives her permission graciously, but we don't know how long she worked. We don't know how much she was able to do that day. I don't think it was a full day, but what we do see is that Ruth was kind of a beast because in the amount of time that she was able to work, she got an ephah. And most scholars think that an ephah is between about 30 and 50 pounds. This is a 50-pound bag of flour. Can you imagine young Ruth carrying this sack back from the land all the way back to her home? Now, I was at Costco this last week, and I called Kevin, and I said, Kevin, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a bag of flour. Do you want me to get one? And uh, it's 50 pounds. And he's like, do they have a 30-pound one? It's like, sorry, man, if you're going, if you're going with it, it's got to be 50 pounds. So he might have had somebody else bring it up for him. I'm not sure. But what this begins to show us is that when God provides, he provides in abundance. When God provides, he provides in abundance. It reminds me of the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, that after everybody had their fill, there was 12 basketfuls left over. It reminds me of when Jesus said to the disciples while they were in the fishing boat, hey, put your net on the other side. And they pulled it up and all these fish came up and they couldn't even bring all of it up. They had to call the other boat to help them. When God provides, he provides in abundance. God owns everything and he is always moving to provide the things that he knows his people needs. And when we see a 50 pound sack, what I want this to remind you of is that God didn't just give them what they needed that day. But on the first day, not even a full day of gleaning, she had more than enough. And I don't know how far the land was from her house, but that's why I can say Ruth is a beast, because I'm starting to get a little tired. So I'm just going to place it right here so that you can remember. 
Now, this is, I already use it at 9 a.m., so if anybody wants a 50-pound bag of flour, feel free to take it. I'm gluten-free, so I can't use it. So it's up here if you want to take it. It's served its purpose. When God provides, he provides in abundance. And what we see is Ruth's report reveals God's provision. Ruth's report reveals God's provision. We get to begin to see the things that God is doing. At the end of chapter 1, we saw Naomi feeling completely empty, completely hopeless. She actually starts accusing God, and she says, I went away full, God brought me back empty. I went away full, but God has afflicted me. And I think God wanted to stoop down in that moment and whisper in her ear, just you wait, my daughter. I know you can't see yet what I'm going to do. I know things seem dire. But I am going to provide what you need. And you will see that when I provide what you need, it won't just be for you. I'm going to move through you as I write my story. Now, after this long day of work, Ruth gets to get ready on her journey back home, but Naomi didn't know if she had succeeded. Ruth couldn't take a, take a selfie and send it to her mother-in-law saying, hey, it worked. She didn't even know if she found a place to glean. She didn't know if she was even still alive. So when Ruth gets back and drops her sack of, of grain on the ground that she had gathered, along with the leftover grain, the toasted grain that she had eaten, we saw last week that she got some toasted grain, ate as much as she needed, and then was able to have some more. She had all of this that she was taking home. And it must have been a shock to Naomi because we read this in verse 19. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And she added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now, I love this exchange. There is so much going on here, and we're going to have to go back to the cultural and historical context of what's going on to fully understand what's happening. But when Ruth walks in and drops her the flower on the ground, I imagine her being out of breath. She had worked all day in the hot sun. She had just done this journey of some distance with a 50, 30 to 50 pound sack of grain. She gets home, she's out of breath, and her mother-in-law is shocked. And she just says, where did you go? The guy that you got to glean with must have been awesome because this is so much food. And I think Ruth would have been like, yeah, he was awesome. His name's Boaz. Have you heard of him? She doesn't know yet. She has no idea who Boaz was. She didn't get a chance to debrief with her mother-in-law. And at first, her mother-in-law said, man, he bless the man who did this. But after she found out it was Boaz, she changes her perspective and says, the Lord bless him. I think Naomi started getting some hope again. She said, the Lord bless him. Now, I'm from Chicago, so it's taken me about 10 years to figure out what bless his heart means and something like, oh, bless him, Right? And, and I think, as I've tried to learn this vernacular, I think what that means is, oh, poor him, right? Oh, we feel really bad for him. 
Well, from where I'm from, I would probably just say something like, sucks to be him, but you guys are much more polite, uh, so it comes out as, bless him. That's not what's going on here. When she says, the Lord bless him, this is an act of worship. This is a phrase of worship where she begins to see that God is moving. God is moving. And what we see in Naomi's realization is that it reveals growing hope. Naomi's realization reveals growing hope. She starts getting excited when she sees not only that there's this possibility that we're going to have food and we're going to be able to eat, but I think it starts revealing to her, maybe I've missed something. When they left Moab, she was completely empty and she saw no way that they would be able to get through this. There was no one left in her immediate family that had a responsibility to help them. But once she hears about Boaz, she starts getting hope and starts thinking maybe there's something that God can do. Originally, they went back to Bethlehem for food, not for family. But God was beginning to show his hand and hope started to rise. Now, what's a guardian redeemer? Your translation might say kinsman redeemer. Well, we've been learning about a couple of concepts in the book of Ruth that show God's heart and his compassion for the poor, for the foreigner, for the oppressed, for those who have gone without. We learned about gleaning last week where landowners were commanded to allow the poor and the foreigner to go and glean to work for food that could provide for themselves. And and here we see another principle, the kinsman redeemer. And I love that we get to see God's heart for his people. I love that we get to see in the Old Testament, God's love and heart for the poor and the foreigner and the oppressed and the fatherless. Often when we think about the Old Testament, we think about an angry God. And we think about the New Testament, we think about a loving God. But we serve the same God. And he has been revealing himself throughout his entire revelation. The scriptures that we see in from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, who this God is. And we read about the kinsman redeemer principle in Leviticus 25. It says this, If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the years since they sold it and refund the balance to the one whom they sold it. They can then go back to own their property. But if they don't acquire the means to repay, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee and they can go back to their property. That reads like a finance textbook from my finance classes in business school. But what God's trying to show here is, hey, in my economy, for my people that I am setting up, I am going to make it so that even if you fall on hard times, even if you have to sell your land to eat, even if you have to sell yourself into slavery, even if you lose your land because of some reason, I am commanding that if you have a relative that's near to you that has the means, they're to buy it, they're to redeem it, and they're to come along with you to help you, to provide for you, so that you can work yourself back into owning it. But he goes further than that. Every 50 years, he set up the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all debts would be canceled. 
And everybody would have their property, their land, their assets returned to them that they had to get rid of. So even if you didn't have a kinsman redeemer, everything would come back. This is such an incredible heart of our father. In his economy, he actually made it so that generational poverty was impossible. He actually made it so that even if you fall on the hardest times, everything is going to come back to you. Now, this is not something that uh, an economy that we live under, but I love getting to see the heart of God. And it just so happens that Ruth stumbled upon not just a wealthy landowner that let her glean, but someone who was their kinsman redeemer. But within the text, there's even a little bit more hope. And I actually don't think Naomi would have known about this. But as New Testament readers of this story, we get to see the whole picture. And what we saw last week is Naomi asked this incredibly humble question in Ruth 2.10. She says, at this she bowed down with her face to the ground. And she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She knows that as a foreigner, she doesn't have any say. She doesn't have anybody owe her anything. She's on the bottom of the totem pole. And it's interesting to me that she makes that statement. Why have you shown such favor to me, a foreigner? Well, Ruth didn't just so happen to wind up on a wealthy landowner's property that was willing to let her glean. She didn't just wind up on the doorstep of someone who was her her kinsman redeemer. She actually wound up on the doorstep of probably the only guy in all of Israel that actually would have shown compassion on her situation. How do I know that? Well, if you're reading the Bible from beginning to end and you get to the story of Ruth, you would have already met Boaz's mom. Her name was Rahab. In Joshua chapter 2, going back uh, to the left a little bit in your Bible, as the people of Israel were getting ready to go in and conquer the land so they could get the land of promise, they went and they sent two spies into the land of Jericho. That was going to be the first place that they would, they would receive, and they went in to try to figure out how do we take this land. And they met a woman named Rahab who was described as a prostitute and a foreigner. But she had heard of God. She had heard what God did in freeing the people out of Egypt. So she helped them. She gave them shelter while the people were looking for her. And as the spies were leaving, Rahab said this, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives are are for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Four chapters later, at the conclusion of the story, we read, But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men that Joshua has sent out to spot as spies in Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now, Rahab was the first foreigner that we read about that actually got to be integrated into the people of Israel. An incredible blessing for her and her family, but my guess is that integration process didn't go all that smoothly. 
It wasn't just like everybody would have opened their arms and welcomed them because she was the first person coming in that didn't have Israelite blood. My guess is she was shunned. My guess is she struggled with that integration. And Rahab had a son, and he was a half-Israelite whose name was Boaz. And Boaz would have watched his mom suffer through this whole process. And this just so happens to be the place that Ruth shows up with somebody that might have compassion on a foreigner who is out of her luck. This is my favorite detail in the book of Ruth. And though we don't get to actually read the name Rahab in this story, the New Testament begins from the very beginning painting her name across the billboards. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Skip down a few verses. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. We tend to read over the genealogies because we can't pronounce the names and we can't see ourselves in them. But what we see here is because of what God had done through this family, Ruth and Rahab got to be a part of the genealogy of King Jesus, who was coming to redeem the world. And the genealogies were so significant back then. We don't get it as much. If you want to know who Steve is, you don't go look for the genealogy of Steve Elworth. Right? We don't have these anymore. So they would have been looking to a genealogy for the pedigree of that king to know, is this someone we should be excited about? And there are some things that we see in this genealogy that never would have happened in a genealogy in Israel. First of all, there are four women in this genealogy. That never would have happened in Israel, and it should begin to show us that God is a different God than the people around were used to. And Jesus was going to be a different king. But not only was there four women, but two of the women were foreigners. In the genealogy of the king of Israel that would reign forever, King Jesus, two foreigners are a part of his genealogy. This is the God that we put our hope in. What we should be seeing as we see this story in light of God's story is he is strong and worthy for our hope to reside on him because he is for not just men, but women, not just Israel, but foreigners, not just wealthy, but poor, not just those who have made obvious mistakes, but those who are also trying to follow God. We don't have to be perfect, and we have a God that has come for the world. And in the story of Ruth, we get to see this on display as God moves these things for his purposes. This is the hope that we have for those who follow Jesus. And as we continue on in the book of Ruth, let's let that reality draw our eyes. And maybe it has to be violently drawing our eyes off of our situation, off of our circumstances, off of the things that we try to do for ourselves and put them squarely on Jesus. Biblical hope has three characteristics that we see in this story. The first is biblical hope is grounded in God, not our circumstances. It's grounded in God, not our circumstances. If our hope was on our circumstances, then we would always and forever be fearful and anxious and trying to labor to figure out how we can have the life 
that we want. And we will never achieve it because we will always be chasing that feeling that we think we should have. And that is what the world around us is doing day in and day out. But our hope rests on God. Biblical hope is not just grounded in God, but it's built on God's past faithfulness. That's why we have the story of Ruth. That's why we have the Old Testament. That's why we get to learn about the the people that have gone before us. That's why we get to look back on our own lives to see what God has done and to see that he has always remained faithful and always brought us forward. The best way to trust in God's future faithfulness is the track record of his past faithfulness. The best way to have hope in God's future faithfulness is the track record of his past faithfulness. And he has a perfect track record. And so that means for us that biblical hope is certain because of God's future promises. We have all of the promises of God that find their yes and amen in Jesus. And we can trust because of what he's done that he will come through on all of the things that he said that he would do. This is where our biblical hope is found. Now, as we look at Ruth, as we look at the character of Ruth, we never get to see her waver. We never get to see her not be obedient. We never get to see her fluctuate. But we do get to see Naomi fluctuate. And I think that that is a beautiful grace that God gives us. Because if you're a human in the room, my guess is you do not have perfect hope. My guess is you have not perfectly set your hope always and forever on God. My guess is you have struggled with hopelessness. And so we get to see Naomi. We get to see Naomi's hope fluctuate. At the end of chapter one, she had no hope and she thought she had nothing at all. And then here she sees a bag of grain and she's like, ah, I see a clear path now to the life that I want. My hope's back. And it would be easy for us reading the story to apply that to our lives and to say, well, maybe my hope should be based on my circumstances. When things feel bad, maybe I won't have hope. When things feel good, maybe I will. But I don't think that's what we're supposed to see when it comes to Naomi. Remember, as we come to narrative genre in the Bible, we're not supposed to just emulate things that we see in people. We're not looking at the characters as the ideal. But what we see in Naomi is someone who's relatable. Someone who is not having perfect hope all the time. And as a human that happens to struggle significantly placing my hope on God all the time, I am so grateful that God includes her fluctuating hope. Because what it shows me is I don't have to have perfect hope all the time. What it shows me is I don't have to have perfect faithfulness and trust all of the time. What it shows me is God's movement is not dependent on my faith. God's faithfulness is not dependent on my faithfulness. God is gracious to pour out blessing and favor even on people that don't deserve it like me and like you. That we can trust that God is always God and his actions are not tied to our actions. He is always good and that is where our hope is found. But we do get to see Ruth. We get to see her obedience. 
we get to see her faithfulness. And what we see is Ruth's response reveals consistent obedience. Ruth's response reveals consistent obedience. The rest of the chapter finishes like this. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they've finished harvesting all my grain. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth's faithfulness and constant obedience has been a theme throughout this entire book. But what we don't get to see is the things about God which Ruth is excited. We don't get to see the things that she learned about while she was in Moab, living for 10 years with her, with her husband and with Naomi and the rest of the family. And we don't get to see Ruth's inner dialogue. We don't get to see the questions that she had, the fears that she had, the insecurities that she had, the doubts that she had. And I'm assuming they're there. I'm assuming like every other human, she doesn't have the perfect hope all the time. What we see is an exemplary woman with incredible faith. And here's what I don't think we should do with the character of Ruth. I don't think we should compare ourselves to her. I don't think the point of the character of Ruth is to say, man, I need to be like Ruth. I need to have perfect faith. I need to have perfect hope. I need to have perfect obedience and then maybe something will go well with me. I don't think we're supposed to see and celebrate the faith of Ruth. I think we're supposed to see and celebrate the faithfulness of God. I don't think we're supposed to look at the story and think, man, Ruth is awesome. I think we're supposed to look at the story and say, man, God is awesome. I don't think we're supposed to look at the story and think, man, I wish I had the trust that Ruth had. I think we should say the God of Ruth is trustworthy. We're supposed to leave the story of Ruth with our hope in God magnified because the God of our hope is magnified. We're to leave the story of Ruth with our hope in God magnified because the God of our hope is magnified. We're supposed to see him not just as a God that blesses me and provides for me so I can have the life that I want, but we're to see our story as a part of his story. We're supposed to see what he's doing in our lives in light of his grand narrative, not in light of just my comfort and my happiness. We're to see him as a cosmic God, an eternal God, a global God, a faithful God. So whatever you're going through, whether it's good or bad, whether it's easy or hard, whether it's comfortable or devastating, whether it's status quo or exciting, what this shows us is God is always with you. He is always moving. He is always faithful. And he will finish what he started. That is what the story of Ruth shows us. But as New Testament readers, we have something more. I said at the beginning that Ruth was read at the Feast of Weeks. Well, the Feast of Weeks happens to have another name. It's also called the Feast of Pentecost. And it's the same Feast of Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2. 
when the disciples were sitting there waiting for God to do something. Jesus had died. He had gone back to heaven. They had been there for 40 days praying. They're probably anxious. They're probably wondering when Rome was going to come ransack their headquarters and take everybody to jail. And it's on Pentecost when God pours out his spirit on them. It's at the Feast of Pentecost that Peter stands up and he proclaims a message to everyone who's there. And there's a long list of all of these different tribes, tongues, people, and nation. And God empowers him to speak a message that they all hear in a different language. And he ends that message like this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far far off, for all to whom the Lord our God will call. The Israelites got to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost every year to be reminded to celebrate God for his provision. We get to look back on the Feast of Pentecost, praising and thanking God for his ultimate provision. That he sent his son to this planet to live the life that we were called to live but couldn't. To die the death that we deserved. And he rose from the dead that we would have life and a solid place to set our hope. Paul talked about that place of setting our hope in Ephesians chapter 1. He said, in verse 13, he says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. He was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. All those years ago on the Feast of Pentecost, God poured out his spirit that was to be a seal marking and guaranteeing a place for our hope that we would have forever, no matter what is going on around us, a foundation that can actually bear the weight of our hope, that no matter what is going on around us, no matter the chaos, no matter the economic turmoil, no matter the political turmoil, no matter the financial turmoil, no matter your health turmoil, whatever is going on, we have a solid place to put our hope. If you've wondered why it was Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out, It's because the Feast of Pentecost was to push the people of God to celebrate God's provision. But now we don't celebrate God's provision in just the harvest. We celebrate his provision of himself. And if you have not decided to put your faith and trust in Jesus, then the only place you can try to put your hope is in what you can accomplish and what you can figure out and trying to get to the other side of whatever it is that is a barrier to your joy. That's a terrifying place to be. But all those years ago on the Feast of Pentecost, God poured out his spirit to join with everything that he has been doing and moving towards history in order to bring you to this day. And because of what Jesus has done, you can place your hope, not just for tomorrow, but forever and eternity on the finished work of Jesus. You can place it on the past faithfulness of God so that you have a solid foundation for all of the future promises of God.
So as we look at Ruth and as we continue on in the story, let it not lead us to think that we need to be perfect like Ruth. Let it lead us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Let it lead us to show and remind us that just like Ruth's story was a part of God's grand narrative, our story is a part of God's grand narrative. And Ruth didn't just chance upon her kinsman redeemer, but God had sovereignly moved her to be a part of the redeemer of humanity that was to come through her line. That's what Ruth is supposed to show us. Pray with me as as we continue in our service. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. This story that you're writing is greater than any story we could come up with. It's greater than any story that we'd even be able to follow if we didn't get a chance to look back on it and what you're doing. And we are so prone to looking down and being afraid and anxious about what's going on around us. But would you pry our eyes off of the ground and place them on what you're doing? And God, for everyone in this room that is struggling to have their hope in the right place, for everyone that is struggling to place their hope on what you have done and what you're doing, for everyone that is struggling to pry their hope off of what they can do in their own strength, would you allow us to get a glimpse of Jesus today? Would you allow us to know your presence? And as we sing and celebrate who you are, would you continue to cement that in our souls? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.